I'm thankful we have truth. Truth is absolute. Truth cannot be questioned. It's a foundation upon which we can stand. This is a very special season that we have, that we're celebrating, that we're in the midst of. You know, a lot of, even among professing Christians, debate uh, about different aspects of Christmas. How many of you have ever had your birthday totally missed by everybody? Would you feel kind of bad if it was missed? (laughs) Probably would. And that's not to trivialize who God is, but to stop and to think of one of the most significant events and all of the record of history. And as we celebrate Christmas, there are family traditions that we do, which are great. It's important to establish the family and have those things that tie us together. But to have the foundation and to be teaching and to realize that Christmas is a time when we, what we as Christians celebrate Christmas is a time for us to celebrate and to honor the Lord. It's a time for us to be humbled in realizing what God has done. But also, it's a tremendous time for us to be teaching the next generations as well as those that are around us. Uh, teaching is so critical, yet it's what we fall so short on in so many ways. Remembering, when we read through the scriptures, the matter of remember, remember, remember. It's, for, it's not because I'm getting forgetful, and it's not that kind of remembrance. It's for the purpose of exalting God, but passing it on and the significance and the importance of what that event is that we're remembering. This morning we're going to look in Judges chapter 3. If you would turn over there, please. Judges chapter 3. Paul writing in Romans said, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. He was writing to Gentile Christians, but what things had already been written? The old, what we call the Old Testament scriptures. Those things were written, and it was for us to be able to be taught, to be instructed, that we might have hope through patience and comfort that we might have hope. How many of us are patient? It's a struggle for us, isn't it? Uh, and we may have patience in one thing, not in another thing but also patience and comfort that we might have hope. This morning I want us to look in this passage, the first 11 verses of Judges chapter 3, at some principles that are given to us for instruction. This is the nation of Israel, a record of the nation of Israel in their early history after they had come out of Egypt. But as we read this record, uh, it's splitting wide open with principles that apply to us. It's splitting wide open, actually, with... We can look at that and say, well, it looks like today in many, many ways. It looks like what we've seen through our lifetime in many, many ways. Sinful man is sinful man, regardless what generation you look at. And the same tendencies are there. The same warnings for us. If you're able, if you would, please stand and follow along with me as I read the first 11 verses of Judges chapter 3. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many as Israel has had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war 
at the least such as before knew nothing thereof, namely five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites that dwelt among Lebanon, uh, dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baalorum unto the entering in of Hamath. And they were to prove Israel by them, to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served Balaam and the groves. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushanarishatham, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushanarishatham eight years. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel, who delivered them, even Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel, and went out to war. And the Lord delivered Cushanrishithim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed against Cushanrishithim. And the land had rest forty years, and Othniel the son of Kenaz died. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to be able to gather freely here this morning for the purpose of worshiping thee through our singing, through prayer, through giving of our tithes and offerings, through the fellowship we have one with another, and Father, to be able to worship thee especially through the preaching and teaching of thy word. We thank you for thy word that it is truth, that is forever settled in heaven. And I pray, Father, now that you would help each one of us to resolve and to prepare in our hearts to not be arguing against thee, but, Father, to have our hearts prepared for the entrance of thy word and for the work in thy spirit. Father, we marvel that you would choose the vessel, an earthen vessel of men, to proclaim thy word. Father, I pray that you'd help me now. It's not through the eloquence of a man. It's not through the intellect of a man. But through the power of thy word and the working of thy spirit, that eternal spiritual victories are won. And I pray this morning now as I bring forth thy word that you'd help me to bring it forth in clarity in a way that would honor thee, in a way that you can use it in lives today, that you would be honored and glorified through it. In Jesus' name we thank thee and we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As we look at the book of Judges, those of you that are familiar with this book know that it's really a book of failure and then repentance and victory. Failure, repentance, and victory. It's a cycle that goes on and on, but the theme is summed up with the fact that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You know, we say, well, that's characteristic of what we see going on today. That's the nature of man, of unregenerate man. But it's also the nature of professing Christians that do not continually yield their lives in obedience to be growing in understanding of God's Word. We see events that are taking place around us in our nation today. And 
know, sometimes I struggle even with going to a message like this because we don't want them to be political messages. And it's not with an intent of being political. But as we hear the preaching and the teaching of God's Word, it's to equip us for living in the days in which we are living. It's not for us to stick our hands in the sand and say, well, it's all going to blow over and it's all going to be okay. We're living in days of enormous change that's taking place. That's not being a pessimist. That's not being a naysayer. That's not even being a conspiratorist. Benjamin was telling me he saw uh, mime, is that how you pronounce it? That showed guys saying, had a list of it, said, now that all my conspiracy theories have happened, does anybody else have a new conspiracy theory? You know, just so many things are happening, going on around us, and we're seeing things revealed. We look around and we see people that are in absolute blindness, that don't have a clue, some of them unintentionally. But really gives us a picture. And the ultimate realization, it's the outward manifestation of the spiritual warfare that's taking place. And we need to continually remind ourselves that when men reject the law of God, why do we think they would respect any other law that is given? We just see an emboldening that's taking place. Secondly, we understand uh, that we're listening for the shout of an archangel, the sound of a trumpet. And that's what we need to continue to listen for. Events are taking place we don't know, it may be another hundred years, another thousand years. Uh, we planted trees this past year in our yard. Uh, you know, who knows? We're to live each day as if uh, it would be another thousand years and as if it would be today. But we are in the midst of a spiritual warfare. We're also in the midst of a warfare within our nation that many are afraid even to acknowledge. As we look back upon statements by our founding fathers, a number of them Christians, a number of them deists or theists, but not saved. They had a fear of God. They had a fear of the Word of God. They understood the wisdom of the Word of God, but not in the fear of the Lord that brought them to salvation. And it was upon that that our nation was established. And we can read so many quotes by the founding fathers that point back to the necessity that if we forsake God's Word, we are a hopeless people. But I want to read a quote by one of them this morning, Thomas Jefferson. When we went to Monticello, we saw one of his Bibles that he used a penknife to cut out verses that weren't really relevant or applicable. Every indication we can see that I'm aware of, Thomas Jefferson was not a saved man. He was a theist. Uh, but I want to read one of the quotes by him. And I have heard the very last sentence of this quote numerous times. And I was looking for it for this morning to put it in context. I want to read it in a little more context. What country before ever existed a century and a half without a rebellion? Now, this is the question that Thomas Jefferson was asking with the founding of our nation. What country had ever existed a century and a half without a rebellion? And what country can preserve its liberties if their rulers are not warned from time to time that their people preserve the spirit of resistance, let them take arms. The remedy is to set them right as to facts, pardon and pacify them. What signify a few lives lost in a century or two? The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants 
it is its natural manure. Now those are some very harsh sounding words, aren't they? But as we hear those words, it should first of all give us a little more gratitude and respect for the freedom that we have, for the nation that we hold. But secondly, it should bring us to a point that we are wise, that we don't allow ourselves to be lulled into a deceit. And one of the deceits that we're lulled into, and the parallels between patriotism and the spiritual warfare, you really can't tear them apart. The parallels are there, the same principles that are there. How many professing Christians feel like it is so critical, so important for us as Christians to make sure we never offend, that we always show ourselves, quote, loving, that we never alarm anybody, that we never be confrontational with anybody. That's contrary to Scripture. That's a lie from hell that's brought forward. We need to be sure that we never unscripturally offend somebody. If we're walking in Scripture, we're going to offend, but we need to make sure it's not unscripturally that we're offending others. And as Christians, we need to realize that we are in a warfare that's taking place. I read an article last night of uh, something that was just signed by a number of Southern Baptists, and J.D. Greer, the president, was one of the ones that signed it. It was a statement coming out against a statement that their seminary professors had put out. Their seminary professors put out a statement warning against the critical uh, race theory. And J.D. Greer and these other leaders are saying, no, we need to recognize that and embrace it within our churches. That, and it's not even a theory, it's, uh, but it's uh, sadistic. It's a lie from hell of what they're using to make people feel guilty. In our lives as Christians, one of the struggles we often have is the sense of guilt. When if it's under the blood, should there be any guilt? No. We realize that when we start feeling guilty, if it's under the blood... Where does that come from? The old nature or our spiritual enemy? One or the other. It's not from God whatsoever. As we look at this portion this morning, part of it is as a reminder that we are in a warfare spiritually and we are in a warfare in our nation. And there are those who would try to make people think, well, you should just remain quiet that there should be no discussion about these things. We need to be wise. We need to be honest. But I want us to look at this this morning regarding warfare. Bare knowledge of Christ isn't enough to protect us from the dangers of false teaching and apostasy. And unfortunately, there are many that have had a knowledge of Christ, but they have never come to understanding. They've never come to the point of being able to really have them applied into their lives that uh, they've never really become established in their knowledge. There are many academic Christians, but there's no spirituality to them whatsoever. They have no understanding of what these things are. And as we look at these verses this morning, the first thing I want us to realize is uh, that was stated very early on, that God allowed the situation with the enemies dwelling with them that he did not drive out. He left them there to prove Israel that there was a specific purpose. And we need to look back just a little bit to gain more understanding on that matter of why he would do that. 
don't raise hands, don't even nod your heads. But how many of us at times feel like after we're saved, well, every temptation, struggle ought to be removed. It ought to be easy, easy from this point forward, shouldn't it? The Spirit of God is dwelling within me. I have God's Word. I'm a new creation. It ought to be easy. And we still go through those struggles. Some of those are an aspect of God proving us. Some of it is still that refining in our lives. Some of it is the reality of the scars from the past and us trusting God to grow past that. If somebody has an ugly scar, they can't. Uh, it's not their fault. If you ever see um, commercials for like wounded warriors or some of those, you see some men that paid an extreme price in defending our nation with their whole faces having been disfigured or they're losing limbs and they have scars that might be thought horrendous, yet to stop and to think what those scars represent. When you think of the scars in the hands of Jesus, the scars on his feet where the nails were put in, the scar of the side where the spear was stuck in, yet it represents something that is precious. And there are scars from the past in lives that a scar never heals. But we don't have to look at the ugliness of the scar. If we see the scar, we need to be reminded to praise God for the beauty of what's been done and what's taken place. But here as we look at the book of Judges, it's the transition point now of having come into the promised land. Uh, and in the first chapter here, we go through and Joshua passed away. But in <clears throat> excuse me, uh, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, after Joshua had passed away, um, the angel of the Lord uh, comes speaking in verse 2. He said, And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And then as we look down in chapter 2 here in verse 20, we see, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because that this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. And then on over in verse 23, Therefore the Lord left, these, left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. So we see here as we begin in chapter 3, uh, because of the transgressions of the people, that God said he would not drive out the remainder of these nations. He was going to leave these nations within to be thorns to them. And as we look today, we're going to see some of the purpose of those thorns having been left there uh, within the nations. And one of the things we're going to see as we go through is choices being made. But three points I want us to consider as we're working all the way through this chapter is, first of all, the fact of warfare. There is a warfare taking place. Israel had come out of Egypt. They had gone through the wilderness journey and now had come into the promised land. Time for peace and rest. And we see here warfare taking place. At the beginning, we're told about the warfare and the end of the passage that we read this morning. We're talking about the war when Othniel rose up to conquer the enemy that had ensnared them for those eight years. And a reminder for us that we are in warfare. 
Secondly, we're, as we go through, we're going to be reminded of God's purpose for testing. And thirdly, uh, not in so specific of a way, but I want us to realize as we're going through this, that there's a need for future generations to be taught and to be instructed through the example of faithfulness that's going through. Anybody that's sitting here this morning, do you realize that you are a future generation to somebody before? But you're also responsible for the future generations to go forward. As we were talking Christmas Eve or Christmas Day of the precious gift of salvation that God has given to us, I made the comment so many times I wish I could go back and talk to certain people to thank them that God used them all out there with the Lord now. And how I wish I could go back to them and to be able to thank them. They were the generation that were faithful to the future generation that I was. It's something that we need to take seriously in our lives regarding how are we equipping the future generation that goes forward. But as we look now into this portion regarding the matter of warfare in the first three verses, in verse 1, Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. So the first aspect is that these are the nations, the very enemies that were left there, very specific that God had left there to uh, intentionally. It's not an accident. How often when we face trials, when something comes into our lives, do we feel like, well, this didn't have to happen or it's an accident that occurred? And if we can come to the point of holding in our lives that if you're a child of God, there's absolutely nothing that can enter into your life that God has not allowed to enter into your life. That removes a lot of the struggle if we can come to the point, and I doubt there's a person in here, you're breathing, so I doubt there's a person in here that can say, that never happens to me. Anything that happens in my life, I'm good. I know that God's allowed it. I, I start the day out understanding that, knowing that. No, that's not the case. We do struggle with those things, and we need to be reminded and as we go into this passage of God giving this account, it's the very first aspect that he gave uh, to it is Jehovah left those enemy nations in their presence. We're living in communities that there are enemies, spiritual enemies around us. God's put us there for a purpose. It's not for us to try to run and to hide. Uh, so, these, now these are the nations God left them that he had chosen the ones that were going to be left in order to prove them. And they were left there for a specific purpose. And we're going to develop it a little bit more as we look through here. Be left to, to prove them or to test them. We don't like to be tested, do we, on anything in life. I can remember pleading with an uh, algebra professor in college my first semester, asking her if she would allow exemptions if your average was a certain level and she said absolutely not I was fortunate I had a very very good algebra teacher in high school I had been well grounded and I had an unusual for me anyway average for the class when we got to the end of the semester and I remember playing with but uh, you know I could make this low and keep an A and she said no exemptions and she said I believe that you learn it when you hear it instructed in the class when you do the homework, when you take a test, and when you take an exam, that it takes four or five times before you really know it. So no such thing as an exemption. Tests are to prove us 
They're to strengthen us and it's get us grounded in what we know. So when the tests come, instead of us automatically panicking, to be able to understand God has allowed the test into our life for a purpose, that matter of proving the, to strengthen and to help to refine us in who we are. So God had left them there for that purpose, to prove, and notice who it was that it was proving, to prove Israel, God's chosen people. All other nations were looking on. How many times do we have an account of Moses coming to God, pleading that God not destroy the nation, because what would the other nations say? Or God instructing Moses, no, he would not destroy them. So realizing that the other nations are looking on, and sometimes when we go through a test or trial, some of the struggle we go through is, what are people going to think that are looking on? They're going to think that you're a live human being facing the reality of life. And as you're being tested and as you're being proven, proven that God is being honored and glorified when we're obedient to Him. So how was it that He was proving them and who was He proving? Even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. So here we have a generation that not all of them had known the wars that were fought and coming in that needed to be tested and tried. They're kind of the spoiled generation, you could say. I don't know that I'll get this exactly right. I've heard it regarding nations, and I've heard it regarding Christians. Uh, first time I heard it was from Dr. Bob Sr., but it's the first generation that fights the war. The second generation comes in and enjoys the fruit of the victory and the peace and receives instruction. The third generation doesn't get the instruction, doesn't see the reality of it and is willing to compromise, and the fourth generation gives it up completely and falls away. And we can, that's a tendency of man that takes place. And we can see that in churches, we can see that in families many times, and we can see it in the political situation with Thomas Jefferson right there about the matter of the 150 years, of there not being a rebellion taking place. So... Here what God was saying is to test and to prove those that didn't go through the wars that were going through the battles that took place. And then in verse 2 he said, Only that the generation of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least such as before knew nothing thereof. So God allowed these five nations that we're going to see that he named here, he left them there for one purpose and one purpose only. That was to prove this generation and to teach them. Uh, in order to know. There's a need for knowledge and for instruction. And they needed to know war. That matter of to teach them war is a term that in school we still had teachers that used a ruler for more than measuring uh, how long something was, if you know what I mean. Uh, now that would be a taboo. No. But that's really what this word teaches means. It really means with the rod to goad instruct with the use of the rod. So what God was instructing right here was that the purpose of leaving these nations in place was to test and to prove, to teach them of war. And it wasn't just by reading it in the history book and being told by somebody else, but by going into the war. It was really going to be, there was going to be a price that was paid. And as God's people, if we are going to be taught 
It's not just going to be by sitting in the pew and being instructed. It's not just by the reading, but it's by going through the wars that are taking place, that there are prices that are going to be paid. With this, we also realize that there is no generation that can be spared. Jennifer's dad fought in World War II, was in first line of Marines going into Guam, was uh, Purple Heart decorated. He would not allow rice in their house. He was upset when she bought a Toyota for her first car and her sister bought a Honda for her first car. He had a great hatred for the enemy that he had confronted and had faced. And I do not say this derogatorily at all of dad, but there was a generation that fought in World War II, which was supposed to be the war to end all wars, that faced horrific things that I don't think any of us here would be able to fully understand. Because of their love for their children and their grandchildren, they didn't want us to go through it. They didn't want us to have to know all the horror of what those wars were. And many, many, many of them would not speak of it in the least. Many of them threw away all of their badges, all their awards that they had received. And they did not even want to talk anything about it because they did not want to put that weight on the next generation. And fully understanding and appreciating the price that they paid and the love that they showed, the reality that we see is that now we have multiple generations that have no understanding of what war is. And by not knowing what war is, we don't know what the evil and the wickedness is that's out there. We have this naiveness about us that everybody thinks the way that we think and does the same thing that we do. And that's what is essentially being instructed here. The seriousness, how critical it was for this generation that had come into Canaan that had not seen the wars of coming into Canaan, that they needed to be proven, that they needed to be tested, that they would learn what war is. And we need to understand now that we're on this side of the cross, understanding the reality that we do face war, that any warfare that we face, honestly, ought to draw us closer to Christ. It should not to oppress us. Proverbs 24.10, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. If you have not learned, memorize that one, I would encourage you to memorize it. I wish I could say that I was strong in all aspects. But how many times this verse has come to my mind of, if thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. And it confronts with the truth, where is my strength? Is my strength in the Lord? Is my strength in the power of the Word of God? Or is my strength in my abilities and my feelings and my emotions and my personal desires? So the purpose of all of this was to teach them more at the least such as before knew nothing thereof. And as grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles and future parents, the reality, we need to teach our children the matter of warfare. We have become so soft in Christianity in our society. Our children did not have perfect parents, that is for sure. But when we knew that God had called us to go to the mission field, 
We were 45 years old at that point. Heidi was, they were 11, 9, somewhere in that age. We received counsel, don't go until your kids are out of high school. It's going to be too hard on them. Is God's way perfect? Is God's time perfect? And we start using psychology, which is contrary to the wisdom of God, of how we need to reason and to plan things. But then, so often with our children, we say, well, we don't want our children to be exposed to these things. Well, you know, if we're in the ministry, our children are going to see some of the ugly side of ministry, of what people are really, some struggles that people really go through. It's going to hurt them. And then later on, some children grow up in homes and they rebel because of what happened, what I saw as an MK or a PK. And they rebel. It's blatant sin against God. And they're going to stand before God accountable for that because they had choices to make. But then for the parents, how are the parents dealing as they're going through those situations? Or you as parents and grandparents here, as you face battles, spiritual battles in your life, or you're helping somebody going through a spiritual battle, how do you teach and train your children as you're going through that time? You need to be teaching them that, yes, we do face warfare, and this is how we gain the victory and we help somebody else to gain the victory. And as we come through, if we come through and it was an ugly situation, where is it that we can give God the praise and the thanksgiving and the glory? But sadly today there are so many schisms that have taken place of individuals that came out of even good, godly Christian homes. And they're not living according to what they were taught in God's Word. And they've become rebellious because of what they saw as kids growing up. That would be to say because this generation had to go into war, all of a sudden their kids are going to hate everything that was done. No, there's a purpose for the warfare and we need to be faithful in it. And understand the purpose of the warfare that we go through is to prove us, to test us, to equip us, and to strengthen us, and to strengthen the future generations. And that's what God said here, that the future generations would be able to understand and to know, such as before knew nothing thereof. And then in Judges 3, we see where God named the nations that He left. Uh, he named them out uh, very specifically. And there's a history behind each one of these nations that he left, namely the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baalorum unto the entering in of Hamath. God identified the enemy to them of who the enemy was that he was not driving out before them. I want you to understand that there's a comfort given to us in the warfare that we're facing today. God does name the enemy to us. We're not facing an unknown enemy. We just have to be willing to identify the enemy for who they are. How do we identify them? By the Word of God. If they're not according to truth, then what are they? They're darkness. They're the enemy of the truth of God. So God named very specifically the enemy. Now let me ask you, if you were told who the enemy is, would you be a little cautious about them and being around them? Say, oh, definitely, without a doubt, we would be. We're not going to turn to these passages, but if you take notes, I'd like you to jot these passages down. Because actually, each one of these nations, God's given us a little bit of history behind them. 
the Canaanites. Just start down Judges 1, verses 27 through 29. The Hittites, Judges chapter 1, 25 through 26. The Amorites, Judges 1, verses 3 and 4. The Perizzites, Judges 1, verses 4 and 5. And the Hivites are not specifically mentioned. Some would suggest they may have been from the Hittites. But the Jebusites, Judges 1 and verse 21. And if you go back and read the history for each one of those nations, they're nations that the tribes failed to drive out when God called them to drive them out. And they didn't completely drive them out. Some of them, they won the victory. They captured the king and they killed the king but they did not utterly destroy the nation. In fact, I believe it was Judah that God's word gives in that record in Judges 1 of the Canaanites that they kept them for tribute to use as their servants. It made good sense to them, but we see because they did not completely obey God's word and it came to a point God said, I'm not driving them out. You're, because of your sin, a failure of complete obedience, they're going to be left here to test you, to prove you, and to teach your children warfare. Now within that, I want to come back for an application in our own lives. Again, we're all still breathing, so none of us have reached perfection yet. And every one of us in here probably, every one of us in here does still deal with situations from the old man, from the old nature that slips up at times. Things that we do, things that we say, we shouldn't have said, that we shouldn't have done. Sometimes it's, we say, well, this is so much worse than this one. It's sin before God. Let's just stop making excuses. It's sin before God. And our children may see it. Or somebody else in the church may see it. And let's realize that they do see it. Think of it in the same way of these people right here, of these nations that God left to test and to prove. These are things from your old nature, my old nature, that we're still dealing with that we have to continually be putting to death. Are we fighting the warfare? And when we do commit the sin, when we do fall short in sin, are we faithful at that point to deal with it in the right scriptural way and to acknowledge it in the way that we ought to, that it helps to teach and to instruct others? I do not know background of anybody in here, so what I'm saying is not pointed at anybody in particular. I do know of people that I know well that this would be their background, some that had sexually impure lives, some that had uh, drinking issues, drug issues, uh, theft, stealing kind of issues in their life before they were saved. And sometimes they're the ones that are the strongest and the most dogmatic trying to warn other people of those sins to keep them from going back into those sins. So here has God allowed these nations to remain. Just think of fighting against one of those nations or being in a struggle against them, and then all of a sudden thinking, well, my forefathers failed to drive them out when God commanded them to drive them out completely. When God was going to drive them out for them, they failed to do that. So the reason for the warfare is to teach the matter of war but also to test and prove that a lot of it was a result of their own failure in their lives very early on. Then in Judges 3, verse 4, 
And they were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So here we see uh, the impact that's on the future generations. Are they willing to hearken unto the commandments of God? Their forefathers failed. Are they going to hearken unto the commandments? It's easy for us to blame things on our forefathers sometimes, isn't it? Well, I grew up in a home with such and such, and it's just something that was drilled within me. No, it's sin. It needs to be dealt with and forsaken. It's under the blood. God is taking care of it. Whether they would hearken unto it, take heed to it, and really... And notice it's not the traditions, it's the commandments of the Lord. So these things were to test and prove the future generations in the warfare. Were they going to be dogmatic in obedience? Or were they going to be willing to compromise? And unfortunately, as we see the account of Israel, we're going to realize the parallel within our own lives, the tendency that we have to battle, but also the reality of what we see in churches today in our nation. The choices that were made by Israel. As we look at verses 5 through 7, And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to be their sons, and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served Balaam and the groves. There's a little bit of a progression that we see here. First of all, we see in verse 5, and the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites. Now we have to live in the world. They had to live in the world. You know, as you look at Lot, vexed his righteous soul. As we look at the whole account with Lot and Abraham, my understanding, they came to a point that because of the sizes of the families and the flocks, there needed to be a dividing. And if they divided, one had to go one place, one had to go to the other. Lot's sin was that he went and he dwelt in the city and he became enamored with the city. His heart was wrong. And as we read this matter here of dwelt, the word that's translated dwelt is the same word in Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. That sitteth means to have put yourself right there in the place of, uh, to be right in the midst of it, uh, encompassed about it. The word sitteth is the same word as dwelt here. And there's a progression that takes place there in Psalm 1. That standeth, walketh not, standeth not, and sitteth not. So, there's a progression. We're in this world. We're walking through this world. There's no choice. We, as long as God wants us here, we're walking through this world. This is where we're living. But where is it? How is it that we place ourselves in the world? And we see here that matter of a children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites. That word among literally means in the center of, to have the very nearest part of to be. So they're in the land. The enemy were here and they were in here but they chose to live like this with them, right in the whole community with them, to be entangled with them in every way that they could, to be one. We need unity, essentially, would be what many would say. Well, we have to dwell in unity with those that were around. 
and the result of dwelling in that unity rather than the aspect of realizing these were put here to test us in the matter of warring, dwelling in that unity, look what took place. They took their daughters to their wives and they gave their daughters to marry their sons. So it went from the fact of just having to live in the same proximity to now we're living like this, all of a sudden they were intermarrying with each other. Totally contrary to every commandment that God had given to the nation of Israel. And it's something that we need to be careful of in our own lives in this world. Is that we're living in the world, but make sure we're not dwelling among them. That we're not finding all of our socialization, all of our entertainment, everything that we do in the world. It's one of the reasons that God's established the New Testament church. It's one of the reasons that it's so important that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It's one of the reasons it's so important for us to be praying for our single young men and young women, for godly husbands and godly wives, uh, because it's easy of all this around, of all of a sudden then, well, you know, they're really pretty good and we'll get them into the church and they'll start growing. That's contrary to what God has instructed us to. And look what it ultimately came to. And served their gods. So then after the intermarriage came to the aspect, we see it on down the road, Solomon as a classic example. So not only the intermarrying, but ultimately they served their gods. And that word served doesn't mean just acknowledged. Doesn't mean they just went to the Christmas Eve service. The word served here literally means to enslave to work that they became enslaved with their gods. We're in a warfare. And it's hard then when it starts coming into the family, how do we establish those places? Where do we divide? I have a sibling that's marrying an unsaved person, and they're possibly unsaved, and it's going to be an ungodly wedding. Am I going to be a part of that wedding of being a groomsman, a bridesmaid? Well, it's my sibling. Surely I should, shouldn't I? What does God's Word say? What are the principles of God's Word? Are you warning them in doing that? Are you embracing them in doing that? Or are you stepping back and saying, no, there's warning, cry out, the warfare is going on. And we have to be faithful in calling out. And then in verse 7, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forget the Lord their God, and served Balaam and the groves. Notice as that progression took place, and we can go back, and we, and it's a cycle all the way through the book of Judges of uh, blessing, sin, flying totally away, the chastening, repenting, the warfare, and coming back. But we see what it brought it to ultimately. The children did evil in the sight of the Lord. It was a national sin that took place here. And this, I pray, will be encouragement as we look at this particular principle here. As we look on down, Othniel, hopefully you remember that name, that's Caleb's son-in-law uh, that we saw identified over in chapter 1 that was willing to go fight to take a particular uh, tribe. And as a result, Caleb gave Othniel his daughter to be his wife. Othniel was living during that period of time. And as we read through the book of Judges, and we see the judgment and we see the sin, 
and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, we need to be encouraged by the fact that there were faithful Jews, there were faithful Israelites still living through that time. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been any that God could have called on to be a judge or to serve in any other way. And as we're caught in the warfare that's taking place, that we need to realize national sin does bring national judgment. But we're not to despair. Really, it means we should be all the stronger in walking in the light of God's Word. So they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Not everybody, but as a nation as a whole, that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And when they did the evil, they forgot the Lord their God. And the term there, if they forget the Lord their God, literally they became oblivious to Him, that there was no memory or attention given whatsoever to the Lord their God. It wasn't just a matter of, well, a slipping here, a slipping there. They totally apostatized and turned away, forgot any aspect of God whatsoever. And then in doing so, they began to serve. They enslaved themselves to Balaam and to the worship there at the groves. We say, well, that can't happen to us. And that can't happen within our church. That can't happen within our families. It most absolutely can. That's why we need to be continually fighting and realizing that while there's a warfare that's going on, we need to be diligent in protecting and teaching within our families and within our church because all it takes is the one step and the next step and then it's gone. So I know a number of pastors who have been faithful three years until their adult children decided, well, you know, independent Baptists are just so hard-nosed and it's so much if you can't do this and can't do this. They don't show any love toward anybody, no grace toward anybody. And they start getting involved with these looser churches, these uh, more emerging type churches. And then men that have been faithful pastors start saying, well, you know, they really saw us go through struggles and trials and their hearts are right and I support them in what they're doing. No, that's the path that's being talked about right here. Those children, adults, if they're saved, they're not going to lose their salvation. But you know where their children are going to end up? Children of hell. So the warfare to test and to prove, we need to understand that it's going on and to be faithful and not feel like, well, it's just a little bit right here. We need to look all the way down here into verse 7 and see this is where that first step leads to. They forgot God and they served Balaam and the groves. The next realization we see is when men sin, God does bring judgment. Men don't like to talk about that. In verse 8, therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the king that's named here of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served that king for eight years. That word sold was literally to, like to sell into slavery. Because of their sin and their rebellion against God, he sold them into that slavery unto that time. And then verse 9, And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them. Even Othniel, the son of Kenan, is Caleb's younger brother. So we see, as God's chastening came, that the children cried out in repentance, and that crying out is literally a shrieking in anguish or in danger. When somebody truly comes to the point of repenting to God, it is a shrieking out in the anguish of an understanding of the wretchedness of what's taking place and the result in a crying out to God. It's not just a soft, light thing. 
So God brought the chastening just as He brings chastening today. As we see chastening taking place upon our nation today, what is our response to it? It ought to be a crying out in anguish to God of our national sin that is taking place and realizing the criticalness for us to prove the matter of the warfare, the spiritual warfare, to be diligent. While we need to be aware and we need to be involved in certain aspects regarding the political, our greatest involvement right now needs to be on the spiritual. We need to be more diligent in the matter of prayer, more diligent on the matter of testifying and witnessing, more diligent on the matter of people being aware that there is a hope, and we're walking in the light of that hope with the peace that passes all understanding. But when the people repented, God is faithful to provide. The Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger son, younger brother. Uh, it was Caleb's nephew also, his son-in-law. Othniel was a man whose character had been proven already when he had gone to war to fight uh, the fight for Caleb when Caleb had called to send out. His character was proven. Obviously, he had remained faithful through that time. Othniel ought to be somebody that we underline in our Bibles as an encouragement to us as we're going through the warfare, as we see national sin growing darker and darker and darker, that by God's grace that we would be an Othniel in character, faithful to remain true to God, faithful to fight the battles that God would have us to fight, that we would be ready the next time that he would call us for some other aspect as well. And then, verse 10, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war, and the Lord delivered the king of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed against the king. The land had, 40, had rest for 40 years. The people repented, but notice it wasn't a repentance and then everything like that. The people had to go to war, didn't they? So even after the matter of repentance, there is still the matter of dealing with the spiritual warfare in obedience in the light of God's word. And God gives the rest after that warfare has taken place. We need to instruct that to the future generations, but we need to understand for the application in our lives today. We are in a spiritual warfare. We are in a political national warfare right now as well. Something we ought not to just neglect hiding our heads and saying, well, it's not really taking place. But we need to understand what are principles that God has given to us to protect us, to strengthen us, to encourage us. But we need to understand that the warring is to test and to prove, it's to teach the future generations, but ultimately it's to bring the honor and the glory to God. How is it in your life here today? First of all, are you in turmoil yourself right now? I don't think Othniel was in turmoil even when they were, that eight years that they were caught up. I think Othniel was a man that was still being faithful to God. That's the character that we see of him anywhere. A man that was being faithful to the principles of God, probably of a broken heart crying out to God because of the sin of the nation. And in doing so, God would have used him to bring conviction upon others as well. Are you in an Othniel that God can use through your testimony, but also faithful to fight the battles that God would have? And secondly, are you faithful to be teaching the next generations 
by acknowledging the warfare that's going on right now in your own life, in your own family. I doubt there's no problems in the church, so probably there's a problem or two in the church that's faced periodically for working through. I'm saying, by God's grace, I'm going to stand strong. I'm going to stand solid. And I'm going to grow and to honor the Lord through this time. Let's pray.